All right, everybody, let's get started. And uh, are you feeling good? All right, you ready for this one? Because it's going to be fun this morning. Um, with this session, and just fair warning, what I want to talk to you about is divorce. Woo! Yeah, sound good? Absolutely. Um, now, I recognize that with a topic like this, I know some of you who are already on the edge of your seats and like, I think I, my pager just went off. I don't even have one, but I got to get out of here, right? Um, and you're waiting me for, for me to start throwing stones at you or maybe to hand the stones to you to throw at yourself. Um, but be at peace. Uh, Jesus wouldn't do that, and I'm not going to do that either. Uh, today what I want to do is take a look at divorce through the lens of love uh, because love is the reason that Jesus brings it up in the first place. Uh, Jesus knows that marriage can make our lives great and marriage can make our lives miserable. Uh, every marriage has incredible potential, and so he wants to help us access that potential. I also, um, before we go any further, I want you to know that if your life has been impacted by divorce, you're in good company. Um, about a year ago, I did this talk at my church, and, and we did an exercise uh, together that was just really interesting. Um, I basically asked people who had gone through a divorce, whose parents had gone through a divorce, whose children had gone through a divorce or whose close friends had gone through a divorce just to slip up their hand. Now, in an auditorium that probably had 800 people in it, how many hands would you guess went up? All of them, right? It was, there was like one guy looking around going, what, right? Um, but, and, and my hand was up, my hand was up too, by the way. Uh, and so just know that if you or someone you love has been touched by divorce, um, you're not alone. And I say that to say, um, the divorce isn't an issue for them, it's an issue for all of us. And moreover, whether you are single or married, um, whether you are dating or married again, um, you, you want to figure out how to avoid divorce and to build the best marriage possible. So without further ado, um, I want to show you what Jesus said about divorce uh, 2,000 years ago to a group of his first followers. On the shores of the Sea of Galilee, he began with these words. He said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. And one more time, Jesus says, it has been said, and it had been said, and hundreds of years earlier, uh, Moses had given the children of Israel uh, an instruction that went like this. It's found in Deuteronomy 24. Moses said, um, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and hang on to that, and, give, and, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. When she leaves his house, she is free to marry another man. And, and that is absolutely fascinating. Um, notice that Moses didn't forbid divorce, but rather gave guidelines for how it was to be done. And that is critical for us to note, um, despite the fact that we find this instruction more than a bit disturbing. Um, at the time it was given, like 3,500 years ago, it was a massive step in the right direction. And let me tell you why. Moses' purpose, or God's purpose through Moses, better, was to head off a serious injustice that might befall a divorced woman. Uh, because in those days, again, in the Old Testament times, the common practice was to follow the Babylonian code of Hammurabi, or Hammurabi. 
which was written about 250 years prior to Moses. And this code basically said that a woman could be divorced by her husband by him simply saying to her, I disown her three times in the presence of a witness. And that was it. No attorneys, no fees, no depositions, no juries, no settlements. Legally, she had to pack up and leave. And obviously, there are more than a few problems with that cultural situation, including the fact that in a verbal divorce, the woman was sent away without proof. And so if she were to remarry, her former husband might become jealous or vengeful of her and accuse her of adultery, even if there had been none. And if that happened, she would be marked as damaged goods without a place in society. She'd have no stability. She'd have no security. She'd have no hope for a better future. She'd likely have to turn to prostitution in order to survive. And all that to say Moses doesn't define when God would permit divorce in this, pa this passage. Instead, he maintains that a man desiring to divorce his wife must grant her a certificate because in doing so, he was seeking to protect her rights and her future. So it's far from perfect, but it was certainly a step in the right direction. So then by the first century, uh, there were two schools of thought on how to interpret Moses' instruction on divorce, uh, two schools within the Jewish tradition, and they were developed by two famous rabbis named Hillel and Shammai. And these guys, if you start poking around in first century literature, uh, they come up quite a bit, uh, but they were both alive when Jesus was born, and they differed dramatically on how they interpreted the phrase something indecent in Deuteronomy 24. Here's that passage again. Uh, Moses uh, writes, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. Um, and again, they disagreed on how to interpret the something indecent. The perspective founded by Rabbi Hillel focused on the word something and took it to mean anything. So uh, according to him, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds really anything about her that he doesn't care for. In other words, uh, any reason was grounds for divorce in his thought. Um, if the wife burned the breakfast toast, didn't make the bed, or really anything else, she could be appropriately divorced. And now the perspective of the other rabbi, Shammai, was much more conservative, and he focused on the word indecent, and in his thinking, the only acceptable reason for divorce was adultery. So midway through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus steps into this debate within his culture and shares his perspective. So here's what Jesus said. He says, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, uh, uh, sexual immorality, and makes her, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And this passage is notoriously tricky for a reason that I'll explain to you here. You got to wonder, is Jesus saying if we get divorced and then marry someone else, then for the rest of our lives, we're living in adultery? That's a critical question. I get that question probably twice a year from someone at the church. They're looking at this passage and say, what are they talking about? And the answer to that question is unequivocally no, that's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is that unless your wife has actually committed adultery, simply giving her a certificate of divorce because you're not pleased with her places her in the same category as someone who has committed adultery. She has the same future options and consequences as someone who has been unfaithful. 
even though she hasn't. It's almost like you've given her a piece of paper, but because of the cultural waters in which we swim, you've ruined her life. And so Jesus isn't issuing a rule that says you can't get a divorce unless someone has an affair. And he's not saying that if nobody's unfaithful, you're stuck. He's also not saying that you must go through a divorce when there's been an affair. I mean, I have many friends who fought back from an affair and have built a better marriage than they ever had before. So in this teaching, what Jesus is doing is he's condemning the injustice happening to women in his world. He's challenging Hillel's interpretation. He's saying you can't divorce because she burned the toast. That's ridiculous. Women are people not possessions. And at this point, normally one of the ladies is like, mm-hmm, right? Like the Christian mooing, go ahead and try like, mm, go ahead. Mm, that's, yeah, Christian mooing, excellent, right. So Jesus further develops his perspective on divorce during another conversation recorded in Matthew's account. Because as we've noticed, Jesus repeated the ideas he taught in the Sermon on the Mount over and over again as he traveled around Israel. And eventually, the Pharisees, who are a group of Jewish religious leaders, come to Jesus and ask him, a question, because it seems like Jesus is teaching something that's new because he was. So here's what Matthew tells us happened a bit later. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Read Hillel, right? In other words, you know, when, and this is how the question makes it forward in our day, you know, when can I divorce and still be a good person? And I love that the Pharisees, when they come to Jesus, they're basically trying to get him to do a yes or no. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Whose humor are you on? Hillel, Shammai, what's the deal? Uh, do you need a good reason to divorce your wife? And again, this is the same question that many people ask today. But according to Jesus, and this is interesting, this is the wrong question. Like, this is a question that misses the point. So here's how Jesus responds to the Pharisees, and I love this. Haven't you read, he replied, and just notice something with me. The Pharisees had read it. They spent their whole life trying to be good. They memorized the law. All they did was study, right? Have you guys read? Yeah, yeah, we've read, I think, yeah. Have you read that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He says, so they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And so I love this because when they ask Jesus, when can a person get divorced? Jesus answers their question with a question. Isn't that, oh, I love it, right? He asks, what's God's original definition and purpose of marriage? So they're asking, when can a person leave their wife? And Jesus responds, what is marriage? Like Jesus points them back to the beginning, which likely frustrated the Pharisees because they were wondering about situations they were navigating right now. Again, the cultural debate going on in their day. And they're meeting with people and they're like, okay, right now couples don't get along. Things don't work out. Right now, sometimes people are together for a while and they lose interest in one another. Right now, people meet other people and they want to leave their spouse. So so Jesus, can a man divorce his wife for any and every reason? I mean, we know what happened in the beginning, like Adam and Eve. We get it, but, but we're not asking about the beginning. What can we do in the real world? And Jesus doesn't answer them. Instead, he points them back to the beginning when things were ideal. He points them back to the way God intended things to be. And notice that when Jesus does this, tension immediately rises. 
Because when the ideal, what is ideal is often or maybe even always in conflict with what is real. And so Jesus says to the Pharisees, I'm comfortable with that tension and you should be too. And so he points him back to the Garden of Eden and in doing so basically says, your discussion about divorce is irrelevant because you don't even really understand what marriage is. God made these two people one. And so when they get married, they become one. And you're trying to unone what God made one and that never works out well. He says, you're looking at the real and you've lost sight of the ideal and I'm comfortable bringing both of these to you. More practically, Jesus would say, I know that things don't always work out in marriage. I know that we need to come up with a way to protect women in divorce. But I refuse to lose sight of the ideal. I'm going to remember the fact that in the beginning, divorce wasn't a part of the plan. And at this point, the, the Pharisees get confused and ask a clarifying question. And, and it's a great question. They say to Jesus, well, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her on her way. In other words, why did Moses give us a mechanism for divorce if what you're saying is true? And Jesus replied, and this is huge, Jesus, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. And you go, well, that's tough. The Pharisees are like, you're just messing with everything. And and you're pointing us back to the ideal, but the ideal feels impossible. So Jesus, what are we supposed to do with this tension? And Jesus would back, look back at them and look at us and say, you carry it. You have to carry the tension. They say, oh, okay, Jesus, but if we do that, then what are you going to do to all these divorced people? And Jesus would look back at them and say, I'm not going to do anything to these divorced people. I'm going to do something for these divorced people. Stay tuned because I'm going to die for them. I'm going to give my life for them. To which a Pharisee might respond, okay, yeah, but it looks like you're just letting people off the hook, so which way is it? Is it a rule or is it not a rule? Jesus would say, yes, that's the tension. And listen, this is so important. There's a tension and you dare not resolve it because if you resolve it, you lose something incredibly important. And, and so, so here's where this lands for you and for me as, as, as we sometimes journey with friends through this thing. And I'm in the middle of it right now with a, with a really, really good friend. And it's so, so messy and it's so complicated. But, but if you're a follower of Jesus, and, and we are, he's inviting us to follow him into the complexity of marriage and carry the tension between what is real and what is ideal. And the real question is, we, are we willing to embrace a standard that we can't achieve or are we going to change the rules so we can feel better about where we are? And, and here's the thing. If you follow Jesus from time to time, you're going to feel uncomfortable about your life. You're going to feel uncomfortable about your current situation. Um, and let's just be honest. When we read the verses about divorce, for some of us, it's hard because it's been a part of our story. And it's hard to feel condemned even by the words of Jesus. And as you continue to explore the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, you, other people will feel tension rise as well. But the question is really, will, are we willing to embrace a standard that we can't reach? 
and what we deal with the grief and the pain and the regret that goes along with it, all the while knowing that God's grace for us is so wide and broad and deep, we can never exhaust it. Or will we adopt, or will we decide to change the rules, decide these verses don't count anymore in order to create a system and a view of marriage that's comfortable? But I'm telling you, when we do this, we lose something so significant, and that's the tension. There's another side to this, to me, that's interesting. If you forget all the religious and Christian parts, just here, here's what I know about you, and here's what I know about me. As, as painful as it is, this is why I think the tension really is the best way forward. I've never met a divorced man or woman who wanted divorce for their children. Never. In fact, um, in fact, these people want a successful marriage for their kids more than anybody. They want something better for their children and their grandchildren. They refuse to lose sight of the ideal for marriage for their offspring. I mean, I've never talked to a single mom or dad who wants their kids to repeat their path. The single moms I know pray every night for their little girls. They pray that one day that she would meet a man who would love her until the day she dies, even though that wasn't their experience as a mom. They desperately want it for their kids. And the, and the single dads I know pray as well. They, they pray that their kids will have something better than they experience. They want something better for their kids and better for their grandkids. And so to me, all these conversations over the years, it's like, I'm convinced we dare not lose sight of the ideal, even though it's easy to forget and, and even though it's painful to remember. But Jesus, in his amazing grace, invites us to re-embrace the values that changed the world. It's like, yeah, we all fall short and we don't always get it right. But he's like, listen, if you're my follower, you need to commit. You don't change the rules in order to feel better about yourself. You need to live in the tension between what's real and what's ideal. And here's, here's the incredible thing that Jesus did over and over and over again. He pointed to an ideal and yet refused to condemn those who fell short. Jesus pointed to the ideal and yet he refused to condemn those who fell short. And friends, this is the dilemma and the tension and the paradox of the gospel. It's why Jesus came among us and fully embodied both grace and truth. Not 50-50, 100-100. And if you're a math person, that drives you nuts, I know, because you only get 100%, right? But he was full of grace and full of truth all the time. Real and ideal, embodied in human flesh. Jesus taught to and pointed towards an ideal, yet refused to condemn those who fell short. And that's the tension and that's the tension for us as it pertains to Jesus' teaching on marriage. Are we willing to embrace an idea that may never be a full reality, or will we lose sight of the ideal in order to feel better about ourselves? That's the tension. And Jesus invites us to follow him right into the middle of it, and he says, because it's there in that tension that you actually find a better life, a life that's better for you and a life that's better for the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the incredible, amazing gift of grace that's right at the center of your mission. 
We thank you that you came for unworthy people and we're all unworthy. And you picked us up and you dusted us off and you said, let's walk again. Let's try this again. And so we thank you for second chances and third chances and 47 chances. We thank you that you never give up on us. And as the sin gets deeper, the grace gets bigger. May we be a people that embody grace and truth as we live this life. May we be a people who live in the tension of the real and the ideal. And as we do, may our lives shine. And may people come to see the glory of your Son reflected through your people. May we walk worthy. But for today, we want to bless you, and we thank you, and we love you. In the matchless name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Everyone said, Amen.